Good morning. Um, yeah, I'd encourage you before we even get started in a sermon here that um, our, our children's ministry does a really nice job of handing out, um, giving some, some packets out with, uh, with coloring pages and that kind of thing. Uh, and if you, uh, if you have those, uh, you can go to the sermon notes. On the back side of one of those is, um, is a way to draw some things that you learned. Um, if you don't have those, uh, then you can just get a piece of paper. Uh, one of the things that I found, I've got three, uh, three young girls um, uh, at our home that we found uh, is, is, is wonderful experience as a family uh, is to have them draw what they hear in the Psalms. And this Psalm is so illustrative. Um, there are so many things that we, can, we, that we can draw and think of. We have a, a king who is conquering. Um, we have people who are shouting praise to him. We have a creator, a maker. We have a shepherd and his sheep. We have, uh, we have this God who, who, who owns us and loves us. And so I'd encourage you to take either what, what the children's ministry have handed out uh, or to grab a piece of paper. Uh, have your kids draw on that. Uh, draw something up, and then if you would be able to uh, or would like to, you could share uh, that with, uh, with us at any of the, uh, the Parkview Church campus groups or on the, uh, the Parkview Church uh, page there on Facebook. So I'd encourage you to do that. I uh, just personally am really interested in seeing what do kids hear when they see what the psalm is, uh, is singing to us today. Well, Psalm 95 uh, is, um, some, if you know me well enough, uh, it, the thing that I say of every psalm is a good one. Uh, this is a really good one. Uh, and Psalm 95 is especially a fun one. What we're doing in this series here in the Psalms is to talk about how uh, the Psalms shape us so that uh, coming off of Christ's death and resurrection, we, we learn, we're shaped in how we worship God. Uh, We've looked at a lot of different ways in which this takes place. Today, uh, Psalm 91 is more or less going to tell us that God wants his people to get a little bit rowdy. Uh, and that's, uh, that's where we go. Uh, so let me take us, let me take us there. We're going we're gonna to be looking at three different aspects of, of what we understand of God. But before we get there, I really want to pull out how uh, the, the, the feeling that we should have, this rowdy praise of God that comes out at the beginning of, um, of Psalm 95. So I'm going to take you back a couple years to a story to kind of get us in, 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 in the feel of what a psalm is trying to help us feel. This is November 12th, 2016. Uh, football game at Kinnick Stadium. Number two ranked Michigan Wolverines lead the Iowa Hawkeyes 13 to 11 right at the end of the game. So maybe give you a little time. Maybe you're there now. You're remembering this. Maybe you were there. Uh, uh, Iowa has possession on their 33-yard line and with one second left in the football game, freshman kicker Keith Duncan takes the field. There's a word in Hebrew that describes the sound that came out of every Hawkeye fan's voice the moment they knew that ball was going to, uh, through the, the, the uprights to imminent victory. That sound there is translated. Uh, it's one word. It's translated here in our text in the first couple of, uh, couple of lines. It says, let us make a joyful noise. That's that sound. That, that, sound, that, that sound that you can't control that comes out. Yes, we've won. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Why do we do this? Verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. See, this making a joyful noise, this word here means... Uh, it, it is an uncontrollable shout of victory. It's that, that shout of the joy 
the moment when a person realizes that their reality has just met their hope. This is going to be real. This is going to happen. And now sports uh, are an easy way to illustrate this. We weave the stories so that we get these shouts of joy all the time. But this happens elsewhere. When, uh, shout when you, when you open that perfect gift. Uh, shouts that you see uh, from family members or, or loved ones that when, they, when their soldier returns home in a surprising way. Those shouts say, my reality has just met my hope. But Josh Casey is saying all of these things right now, and Josh Casey doesn't always worship this way. Josh Casey really doesn't worship this way in a time of pandemic and quarantine because it seems like Josh Casey realizes that he's pretty weary, that it seems pretty mundane, that there is no light at the end of the tunnel. There is nowhere to place that hope. And oftentimes, if you're like me, we have to ask that question, how do I shout for joy like these people? How do I make sense of my everyday? How do I understand all of the things around me, the finances, the relationship, whether that's a, a, a distancing of relationship or the fact that we've just been with each other so much all the time and we're realizing that our relationships may not be the greatest. Whether we're wondering what the next season is, whether we're wondering when the next season is, there's something in us that doesn't so quickly go to that knee-jerk shout of praise when we think of God in light of today. So Psalm 5, uh, Psalm 95 helps us with that. Psalm 95 gets us rowdy because it invites us, it shows us, it helps give us the process. I'm not just going to dump a bunch of info on you today. I'm inviting you into the process and let 95, as it is preached, work on your heart today that we might get closer to that knee-jerk reaction of praising God when we see him, even in those little moments, even in the moments when we have family uh, with us that's stressful, even in those moments when work gets tense, even in those moments where we just have pure uncertainty that we can cultivate that. And we do that by constantly calibrating our hope to the reality of God. And that's where I'm going to go today. Constantly calibrate your hope to the reality of God. We need that calibration. Keith Duncan didn't kick that field goal without calibrating. He knew time after time again, you set, you kick, you adjust. You set, you kick, you adjust. And time and time again, after he calibrated and dialed it in, he could deliver when the situation was tense. So let's go there. Let's, cal let's constantly calibrate our hope to the reality of God. Verses one through three, they help us to take part of this, to calibrate. First, we must calibrate our reality. So I guess if you're an outline taker, calibrate your reality is the first point. Calibrate your hope is the second point, And calibrate all of that to God. And that's our third point. So this first point comes in verses one through three we must first calibrate our reality. And so here is the reality. So you, if you don't listen to anything else, listen to this. The reality is that there is a Lord God who is real. That this Lord God is king and he is victorious. This is our reality. I'm going to explain that a little bit more now. Verse 3 reads, For the Lord is a great king above all gods. So I want to clarify the word above here, because it could seem 
on first blush that this would be a top 25 ranking system that requires the Lord to compete so that he is above all the other gods. Now we maybe could see that in scripture. Uh, True, the Lord proved himself better than the gods of Egypt when he publicly and systematically took them down one by one with each successive plague. That's Exodus 7 through 12. Uh, True, the Lord proved himself better than the beloved storm god Baal at Mount Carmel when he set fire to Elijah's waterlogged wood. That's 1 Kings 18. But, But these historic accounts that actually happened, an actual instance in history of God proving himself, they're not examples of competitions in a way that, that, that the Lord God needed to prove himself to be higher ranked, to be at least better than the other gods, therefore above other gods. Remember the reality. God alone is sovereign. So in whatever, whatever way you get to your understanding of God, whether, whether that's a, 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 a general uh, a definition of God from what you see around in his general revelation, whether that's a special revelation, what he has revealed to you, uh, however you know that God exists, fundamentally, by definition, you have, to, you have to admit that this God can only be God because he is the highest authority and he is the most powerful. If he weren't those things fundamentally, then he wouldn't be God. And so with that, the examples are not competitions, but they're rather God's, they're, 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 they're stories, they're accounts of God graciously proving the reality of his authority, of his sovereignty, of proving himself to us silly humans that the gods that we've created are no match for the real, true God. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. That is the reality. But we forget this. I forget this. Every day I forget this. And it's because our hearts often lead our minds. We can reason all we want, but sometimes our hearts just don't want to go there. And because our hearts often lead our minds, for that reason we must, point two, calibrate our hope. We must calibrate our reality to this God, one true, real God, but we must also calibrate our hope. And where is our hope? Our hope is in the fact that, verse 6, the Lord is the maker. The Lord is our maker. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. The depths, uh, we see this thing, this wonderful picture here. Uh, The depths of the earth. It's like pulling from Genesis 1. The depths of the earth, the heights of the mountain, the sea and the dry land are all in his hand. Man, that's incredible. So we learn here in in, in, uh, verses 4 and 5, we learn, we're reminded of his intimate immensity. All of everything that he spoke into creation was in his hand. But we don't just hope in a big God. I mean, that's nice. But what's better, what's truer, is in verse 7 we read that we hope in our God. Let's look into this a little bit more. How is the maker our God? Verse, uh, look at verse 5. The sea is his, for he made it. Right there, we learn from the psalmist his own reasoning uh, that uh, that the one who makes something also owns it. See, the sea is his, for 
he made it. Why does he own the sea? Because he made the sea. It seems like I'm just boiling us down to the basics here, and I need to, because we forget these things. Uh, that is, uh, that's a normal thing to think. It's not evidence that uh, is pointing to, ha-ha, we found this God who's this mean ogre in the sky. He creates things so that he can punish them and own them and, and do whatever he wants. It's not this, this weird, possessive God. Uh, rather, it's just laying out the nature of ownership. If you make it, then you own it. If you don't believe me that that's just some natural thing that we, that we, that we all uh, arrive at at some point or another, just go to those, your children who may be coloring their page right now. Just pull that page out from them and take it and watch, listen, hear, see uh, how they react. There's something in us that thinks that when we create, we own. And the Lord is the one who does that. But, but that seems strange because if the one who creates, if the creator is the owner— and we find that the Lord God is the first creator, the uncreated first creator, he owns it all, then why does verse 7 say, for he is our God? He is our God does not suggest that we made God and therefore own him. Rather, we must listen to all the Bible. This is language of a thing called the covenant relationship. This is a relationship that God himself created. In this language, he says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. It reminds us that the Lord has not, not only made us, but also he made a covenant promise to be our God. So then when we read in verse 7, that what well, we read in verse 6, he is our maker, and then we read in verse 7, he is our God, we then can understand that he made us in his image with a purpose to be done in the relationship that he made. He owns all of it. As Abraham uh, Kuyper once said, uh, the Lord looks at everything in creation, and on it he says, mine. And from that promise, he makes us not simply living creatures under his authority, but beloved sheep of his creating hand. I want to pause here because I could go on. I want to go on. I just want to keep going with this psalm. But we got to pause here because sometimes we read a psalm and it goes into our uh, Jesus Bible Sunday morning in the sanctuary of God with his people worshiping category. It's a storybook. Uh, and it doesn't fit the other six and a half days that we live in creation. And, uh, and, and one of the ways in which I found that, uh, that the devil uh, really goes after us to um, make us not calibrated rightly um, is to keep that separation there. You see, uh, see let, me, let me explain it this way. Uh, if we are calibrated, if we are dialed into the way of God, then it seems that when we see him work in small ways, in big ways, in obvious ways, in subtle ways, that we would have this, this, this rowdy shout of praise at those little things. It's not that they memorized the whole book of the Bible. It's that they wanted to try. And we could praise God for that. When we don't get to those subtleties, when we don't get there, it seems as though maybe we're off and we've not been calibrated rightly. We need a recalibration. So, uh, so one of the ways that we understand Satan oftentimes, and we have to come here at this, if God is our maker, it means that we are not the maker. It also means that other things did not make us. Satan oftentimes has this caricature vision of us, and, and it's so awful uh, that he's more or less this cartoony, like, Goat, red goat man that has this pitchfork and um, 
I don't know, in a, in a pentagram, and he like kind of sets it there, and he just like hits us right in the face. He's ready to punch us and, and take us on. Um, we forget one of the names uh, that, that Satan is called as the deceiver. He's not so obvious. <laughs> what he wants to do is he wants to pick us off. He wants to steer us. See, Satan's goal is not that he has 100% of us worshiping him. He's, he's more vindictive than that. He, he's, he's a dirty player. <laughs> he wants us to not be worshiping God. He doesn't care if we're worshiping him. Just don't worship God. And in doing so, you steal from God's glory. He wins. When you take this word of maker and you run it through the Old Testament, you find a whole lot of talk in Isaiah 44 through 52. This whole idea of there is a maker who makes us, then why on earth would we go making something and bowing down to it? It's because it ends Isaiah 50, 51 verse 18. The Lord says to his people, like you and I, I comfort you. Why are you so scared of man? If I am your maker, and you, and I comfort you, then why is the fear of man so much more than my comfort? And he ends it here, quote, it's because you forgot your maker. End quote. You forgot your maker. You and I do this, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm gonna boil this all the way down to today because that's where it matters. There are things that we do today that, that prove that we don't believe in the reality of God, that prove that we don't trust, uh, trust his way, that prove that we do not believe he is our maker because the devices that the devil uses today in a meshing of the real world and the spiritual world, they are the same. They're not two separate things for Sunday morning and every other day. They're overlapping each other and everything we do either feeds one or the other. Here are ways in which the devil speaks, uh, speaks to us in a way that takes us out of calibration to the hope of God. He shifts our hope to other things. Here are some. Consumerism. The fact that we feel we, we have the right to money, the right to spending, the fact that we are upset and inconvenience that our shopping experience is different right now in pandemic, that we might have to take a pay cut, and that upsets us, that we maybe, maybe don't know, or we have an uncertainty, we have a fear of what's next because we're not sure where the paycheck comes from. Now, some of these, many of these, are okay things, but they're also warnings that maybe we're shifting our hope to something else. Consumerism once. Individualism is one. I don't know how many times I've been confronted in the last several weeks on how padded my schedule has kept me from being with people that I might not want to be with, from having longer conversations of listening than I might, than I might have been inclined to, to working through something just because we couldn't separate. consumerism, individualism, politics. This is a year of opportunity, maybe for you, depending on where it's at. Where is your hope in that? Uh, health, we may be inclined to take our health in this season, in any season, to the next level. We want to be firmer. We want to be thinner. We want to be stronger. We want to be beautiful in a way that we don't read beauty so much 
in the Bible. Now, it's not a bad thing to go for health, but is this where your hope is? Are you hoping that this relationship or your new marriage will turn your fate, will turn your circumstance for today? Are you just trying to find some semblance of comfort? (laughs) Oh, America, comfort is our God. And this God seems to be quite a bit uncomfortable. But what do we do when we shift to those gods, when we shift our hope to them? We need to be brought back because one thing we find out is verse 6, we will worship something. We will bow down to something. We will kneel before whomever we think is Lord. I will get three or four or five extra jobs if I really believe that consumerism is king. I will do anything at any hour, not eating anything, doing as much strenuous work if I really believe that my body looking like it's 20 is king. I will do anything to get rid of this relationship if I think it will free me up for that relationship because relationship needs to be good and this one's done. I will do anything to go into this relationship and keep it even if it it hurts one or the other to degrees that are detrimental to us because we think that that person is our savior. We'll kneel before whoever we think is Lord and Satan wants it that way. And he understands that truth. But we find that we have, to, we have to calibrate our hearts. We have to calibrate our hope to a Lord God who is the maker because he not simply makes us, thus giving us purpose, he also makes and owns the promise of his loving relationship. It's ours to lose, lest we forget it. Lest we forget the Lord, our maker. And so what we must do here is we must constantly calibrate our reality. God is real. He is king. He is sovereign. That's it. We must calibrate our hope that he is good and loving and in relationship and wants to be there with us fully. So don't go another way. But none of this will make sense if we don't calibrate all of these to God. We're prone to wander like sheep. We believe, we believe in something. This is a true thing, all of us. We believe in something. If God is not your king, that is if the Lord Jesus Christ is not the foundation and cornerstone of your reality. We just sang about this. Uh, if, if, if the Lord Jesus Christ is not one who you understand to be really far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age but in the one to come, he is that God If our understanding in this life is not calibrated to God, we should not be surprised when we experience moments or days or even seasons of stunned silence in what feels like defeat. One way that you can tell this is where you get discouragement. Small discouragement, big discouragement. You got a handful of eggs, you put them in a basket, that basket gets flipped. In that moment, when you got broken eggs on the floor in your life, whether work, marriage, parenting, <laughs> parenting, <laughs> oh. more parenting. <laughs> it's just so, it's so tough. 
that moment, anger is a great sign for pride. But what would be better is to take a deep breath and ask yourself, I am discouraged because reality did not meet my, meet my hope. What was I hoping in? Why did I put everything there? Because sometimes that flipping of the basket is God benevolently, graciously, lovingly exposing your idols. Lean into that. Calibrate in those moments. Uh, we will believe something. We will also fear something. If God is not your maker, if you put your hope in the promises of this life, in these, in these, in these mechanisms of deception that the, that the devil puts out there, and I'll even go with, it's a religion called syncretism. We do all of these things saying, uh, saying that we do it because we're a good Christian. He wants you to believe these lies and keep going in a way that makes you feel more Christian, that takes you away from just sitting in the restful presence of God. If you don't believe that you're designed for a God-glorifying purpose, to fulfill that purpose within a relationship covenant made and kept by God himself, you should not be surprised to experience the fear of loneliness, of acceptance, of a constant wandering for belonging. Why do you fear man? Because you forgot your maker. We will believe something, we will fear something, and we will listen to someone. If Jesus is not your good shepherd, if you are guided by the many voices out there telling you that you've got it, that a better life for you is a better you, and that better you is, is more money, is better skills, is a lighter, firmer body, is a new job, is new friends, a new house, a better mental game, a more aware emotional approach. And you've listened to the crowd before you've listened to the one calling the play. In Bible terms, you're listening to the wolves, not the shepherd's voice. They want you to wander. I mean, it makes sense, right? It's easier to eat one who's wandering away than to try and gobble up the whole flock together. So he peels us away. He tempts us away. We're prone to wander. And we, verse 10, go astray in our hearts. We need to be brought back to reality. We need recalibrated daily. So hundreds of years uh, after, uh, what came to be known as Psalm 95. It wasn't written as Psalm 95. We just put that number on there so we could understand and be on the same page together today. So uh, in what became Psalm 95, this text, uh, the author of Hebrews, uh, he wrote a sermon on this. In, uh, you can find this in Hebrews 3 through 4. I would encourage you, though we're not going to go through it in depth today, to read that uh, in parallel with Psalm 95. What a great thing. Uh, maybe even do that in a, a group of people, your family, uh, your friends, whatever it would be, and talk through what you see here or there. There's much wisdom in the comparing of these two. I'll summarize it here for our point today. In Psalm 95, uh, or in, in Hebrews 3 and 4, uh, the author clarifies three things. He clarifies faith and rest and today. He says, um, of that generation, 
wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, that they proved that their lack, uh, they proved their lack of faith, uh, faith, that is, they've proved their faithlessness to God by constantly requiring God to prove his faithfulness. See, even when God produces water and they're grumbling, they ask, does God love us? Is he able? Even when we get things like um, a house, we say, thanks, thanks, God. But then in reality, what we say is, why does this leak? Why does it have drafts? Why are there so many ants? Why doesn't it keep itself clean? Grumble, grumble, grumble. We do this the same way. We're no better than them. In fact, we might be worse because we have their example to learn from. Uh, we get a family and we say, thanks God for this family. I've been waiting for this family, for this marriage. And then we realize one day that God has put us in a relationship with a whole bunch of sinners. And so we grumble, grumble, grumble. To this we read in Hebrews 3, 19. They were unable to enter my rest because of their unbelief. They did not believe that I am a God who is real, that I am a God who loves, and that I am a God who is able to take care of them. Because they wanted a God of their own making. Just because God doesn't do it on your terms does not mean that God is not real or loving or able. It means you may have created some other God. But even though the wandering punishment came, it did not remove the promise that God had made to his people. The author of Hebrews pinpoints uh, to that hope, to our hope, to the reality, to the word today. So he, he, he has pointed to this idea of rest, they will not enter it. He has pointed uh, to the reality of faith and faithfulness and faithlessness. But then he lands it here on today, and that is our word for us today. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4, 8, for if Joshua had given the next generation rest when they finally entered the promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on in Psalm 95, which was written long after Joshua had died. At the end of verse 7, Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, the author of Hebrews concludes, so then, if he said today, after they got to what they thought they were promised, it means then that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. But we already should know this. We're weary. We're hard-worked. We're heavy-laden. But there is a shepherd who guides us to himself and guides us to our ultimate rest. Today, if you hear the voice of the shepherd, this good shepherd says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy-laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find your rest, uh, and you will find rest for your souls.
we must constantly calibrate our hope to the reality of God. That word today is so big. My hope is oftentimes that today is tough, but one day, heaven. Our text today brings all of that right here. Your task in your Christian life is first and foremost today. That calibration won't eventually take place when it jumps in, in line. It takes an effort today. And because of your sin, because of my sin, we're going to knock out of, out of alignment. Tomorrow's task will be calibrating. Jesus gives us that example. Jesus gives us that hope. We can rest that we will be okay through faith so that we can get, on, get to work on cultivating the fruits of the Spirit. And that is our task. The Christian life is one of daily calibration. You were anxious before pandemic. You're anxious now. Because while everything around you changed, your heart still needed calibration. While the team ran drills and the team learned plays, Keith Duncan set his daily task to constant calibration. He would set, he would kick, he would adjust, he would repeat. He would set, he would kick, he would adjust, he would repeat. He would change the situation, move to a different yard line. Set, kick, adjust, repeat. The habit formed him. And he did this to the point that no pressure, no situation, no stress or outside force would alter the way in which he did that. He was dialed in with one second left. The Christian life is very similar. The Christian formation, the building of habit is much like this. It's a daily, constant calibration of heart, of soul, of mind, of strength. And our rhythm, set in Christ, apply his word, adjust in reflection. Repeat. Set, apply, adjust, repeat. This is our daily rhythm. Set, apply, adjust, repeat. And then one day we're going to get to this spot in, this, in this, this rhythm where we set, apply, adjust, and then rest forever with shouts of joy because our eternal every day will be the meeting, finally, of our blessed hope and our reality. And it will be nonstop, constant praise. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who is worthy of our praise. We are so sorry that we don't always or often lean into you as much as we need. We don't act as though you are reality. We act as others are reality. We chase after things that seem easier, that seem more instantly gratifying. Give us a, uh, give us a rhythm. Give us a, give us a determination. Give us a discipline. Give us a longing that, 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 that wants to see you and hear you and, and, and put your voice into action today, but also to do so that we might, we might develop a knee-jerk reaction of praise to the small things and the big things you do each day. Turn our grumbling into praise. 
Help us see that your creation is a big, giant bucket of your goodness. And help us to swim in that daily. As we hope for Christ. And a time when our hope will finally be ever-present with our reality. In your name, amen.